on today's show, we talk education. First, K-6 curriculum with Dr. Carla Peck, and then tuition increases at the University of Calgary and the University of Alberta. Sanctions against Russia are targeting the elites. Will that work? And employers are finding they have to revamp their hiring plans, come up with some new incentives to meet the talent crunch. Switching gears now to talk about the new curriculum um, coming from the province of Alberta. Late last week, the government announced that the new controversial curriculum will be phased in starting this coming September. Now, if you've been following along from the beginning, you know this curriculum has been a lightning rod for opposition. There are a lot of groups, a lot of people uh, that are very, very concerned about some of the things that are in this curriculum um, and have been very vocal in expressing, expressing their opposition to it. One of the people that's been very vocal, perhaps one of the most vocal critics, is Carla Peck. And Carla is a professor of social studies education in the Department of Elementary Education at the University of Alberta, and she's going to join us now to uh, talk about this curriculum. Carla, thanks so much for your time today. appreciate you joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So the province has announced plans to phase in this curriculum starting in September. It Basically, if I've got this right, you know, uh, kids kindergarten to grade three get new math and new English language arts and all kids get new phys ed. Do I have that right? Is that the phase-in plan? Yeah, the, the phys ed is, and wellness is kindergarten to grade six. Right, gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So how do, how do you feel about that? I mean, it's a much smaller implementation than originally was planned, and a lot of the more controversial aspects have been pushed back to next year. Uh, is this a compromise you can get behind? It's not, unfortunately. Uh, as you mentioned in your intro, multiple communities of experts have said that the foundations of this curriculum are faulty and that the process needs to start again. This curriculum is simply not ready to be piloted in schools. Um, is it the entire curriculum? Like, I'm just wondering, in terms of math, I mean, there's, there's evidence out there and there's been all kinds of discussion over the years that, you know, math scores have suffered and math hasn't worked out the way it's supposed to. So they're implementing a new math curriculum. Is that a problem? I'm not an expert in math curriculum. My area of expertise is social studies. Yeah. But I will say that my colleagues in math uh, certainly have debunked all of the sort of mythology around Alberta's plunging, so-called plunging scores in international tests and so on. Alberta still ranks very highly in international tests. And so this has been a, a false crisis that has been created in order to justify a new curriculum. It does. Yeah, you're right. The province does still rank very high in terms of international scores, but the scores have gone down. The, the scores change every year because uh, the raw scores change every year. The tests change every year. So, you know, it's not unusual that uh, provinces or, or test scores would, would uh, change from year to year a little bit. I mean, if they had plunged, you know, from from third spot to, you know, 103rd spot, yeah. then, yeah, we would need to be concerned. But, you know, slight changes from year to year. Okay. Um, are pretty normal. Um, just taking a look at where we are now. So we've got the, the, the math and the, and the language arts coming in this September. And a lot of, and, and like you say, the social studies, that was, I think, where most of the controversy and most of the concern was. That's been pushed back for a year. Um, I'm just wondering in terms of, I know there's a, you know, the ATA was out uh, very anti-implementation this weekend. And, and you yourself have been very vocal about, you know, even this phase in approach. The government has taken a lot of steps to try and I don't know, and soften the blow, I guess, with the implementation committee. How do you feel about the implementation committee? Do they not have a role here? 
Well, I mean, I think it's a positive sign that the implementation committee somehow has seemed to made headway with the minister and, and convinced her that it's inappropriate to try and push forward with all grades and all subject areas. Uh, so that's that's a good thing, and kudos to the implementation committee, because frankly, nobody else seems to be getting through. None of the other criticisms seem to be listened to. Um, so, uh, but you know, the implementation committee is not responsible for actually assessing the content of the curriculum. That's out of their scope yeah. of responsibility. So, um, those issues still remain. So, how, what would you like to see happen over the course of the next year before we get to the point where the social studies is, you know, a, a potentially going to be brought in in September of? 2023. Well, the social studies needs to be completely rebuilt from the ground up, and uh, they need to bring in actual content experts, they need to bring in curriculum experts, they need to bring teachers to the table who can be involved in writing the curriculum. Remember, teachers were shut out of this process completely until the drafts were you know, were written and then were given a couple of days to review hundreds of pages of documents. So, um, you know, the whole process has been flawed. And if they're going to start it over, they need to start over on the right foot. Um, okay. So you want everything tossed completely out. There's no way of reworking this at this point with the, the committee that they formed, the $200 million they're offering to spend, the fact that it is being piloted in a couple of jurors. I mean, it needs to be burned down to the ground and start over again. It's been piloted by less than 1% of teachers. Yeah. Uh, 56 school boards representing 95% of students refused to pilot it, citing concerns over uh, quality, but also COVID restrictions, you know, impact of COVID on, on teachers and students. Um, the whole process has been flawed from day one. The people that were hired as advisors, many of them didn't have any background in K-12 education, curriculum design at all, and yet they're the ones who are making decisions about what should be taught in schools. It makes no sense. Why should Albertans put up with having non-experts write their curriculum that will impact students for the next 20 to 25 years? The question I have, though, is in terms of the implement, we don't even know what the final curriculum looks like. We won't until, I think, May, perhaps, the final draft of this curriculum. I mean, I, I know the, the previous drafts had issues, obviously, but the final draft, and there's been a lot of people brought on board, is there any chance that they can come up with something feasible by May? Well, you've actually just made my argument for me, because uh, May, so the public consultations just ended two weeks ago. I think the minister said she actually wants to have a finalized curriculum available sometimes in April. Well, the 1st of April is only three weeks away. Yeah. Uh, even if you give it till May, that's not a lot of time to make substantial changes. And there's no indication at all that... Uh, there are plans to test any changes that have been made in schools prior to implementation. So if the curriculum is available in April or May, that gives teachers one month, June, the end of the school right. year, after the two most stressful years most teachers have had in their careers, most likely because of COVID restrictions and so on, uh, and report cards and end of school and all this sort of stuff, and somehow they're supposed to get themselves ready to implement this in the fall. Well, that would just be K to three math and language arts, right? I mean, everything else has been postponed until at least 2023. And physical education and wellness, right, right, kindergarten right. to grade six. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. The timeline there is uh, really, really tight. Carla, mm -hmm. I really appreciate you joining us this morning. Unfortunately, I'm out of time. I got to get to news, but thanks so much for joining us. 
Thanks so much for your questions. Great to talk to you. Yeah, you bet. That is Carla Peck, Professor of Social Studies Education in the Department of Elementary Education at the University of Alberta. We talked about this last week with the Advanced Minister, Minister for Advanced Education, um, Dimitrios Nikolaitis. He was on the show discussing why he decided to approve what are called exceptional tuition hikes. Now, tuition in the province of Alberta is capped at 7% in terms of increases. You cannot increase tuition in the province of Alberta more than 7%, except when you can. Now, in order to do that, you have to apply to the minister for approval of what they call exceptional tuition hikes. So they did. They applied some of these hikes. You know, they're between 16 70%, 100% for a master's in counseling. And the province said, yeah, okay, let's go ahead. Gave them approval. Some he did send back, said he didn't make a good enough case. So um, he says that he did the due diligence. He approved it. And uh, these tuition hikes are coming in both U of C and U of A. Um, obviously, it's uh, causing some criticism and some controversy. Not everybody happy with this development. Who would be? Your tuition going up uh, 100% in some cases, 70% in other cases. Some faculties are getting very expensive. So to chat about that now, we have Rowan Lay joining us, who is the University of Alberta Student Union President. Rowan, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. No, Shay, thanks for having me here. It's a pleasure. Yeah, so these hikes, I mean, like I say, it's across a few different faculties, but some of them absolutely huge, 100% for a Master's of Counseling. Those kind of numbers obviously catching the attention of a lot of people and, and upsetting a lot of people, right? Yeah, the you know, the response on campus to these hikes has been almost universally negative. Uh, the kind of messages I've been getting from students have been stuff like, not a single major tuition hike in Alberta in the last 20 years has resulted in a quality increase, and they want us to believe that these ones will. Um, so, yeah, you could say that folks are upset. Um, just give us an example here in terms of the way that it's breaking down. Is there any justification for this in your mind? Can you look at some of these and say, you know what, maybe some tuition increases are in order? So, you know, we're not going to reflexively attack and oppose any exceptional tuition increase proposal. So actually, you know, back in 2014, the Students' Union agreed to support a proposal by the Faculty of Law for an exceptional tuition increase. The problem with these proposals is that they've been so rushed and frankly poorly done in many cases and coming at the worst possible time when affordability for students in Alberta is the worst it's ever been, partly because of our financial aid system and partly because of the impacts of the pandemic. So um, between all of those things, no, I don't think there's any justification for any of these tuition increases. Some of these programs obviously are going to see some small or marginal quality improvements from these tuition increases, but students in those programs don't think it's worth it. They are generally nice to have, but not need to have things. And the tuition increases are absolutely huge. So in the eyes of students, the deal is just not very good. Now, in speaking to the minister last week, he was, you know, I asked him, you know, some of the 100% increases, 70% in some faculties, these are big, big hikes. And his explanation and his, his justification for doing this, and you know this, Rowan, is, um, you know what, we're still below the national average, or we're on par with the national average. It's not like we're ridiculously overpriced to obtain these kinds of degrees. It's what everybody else is charging. Yeah, I found it funny that he said that because uh, there's a very 
good reason why the minister is referring to the average instead of the median. In many of these programs in Canada, the average is heavily skewed up by a few extreme outliers. So if you take engineering, for example, then you're going to have an extreme outlier in Waterloo where tuition is like 20 grand a year. So in many of these programs, we're below now the uh, national average, but we're still going to be substantially above the national median. So that's the case with uh, like the DCOM, for example. So, uh, you know, the upshot of this is you can be below the average while still being in the top five most expensive programs in the country in many cases. And that's going to be where Alberta is at now. Obviously, that on top of our financial aid system, which is the worst in the country, means that, you know, being below the average, while it may theoretically be true, is not much of a consolation. The other argument here is um, student aid. Uh, And I know there were some uh, student advocates, including yourself, I believe, saying, yeah, well, you you know, part of the reason that we were... you make a trade-off. Either you fund student financial aid and increase the cost of tuition, or you lower tuition and you lower the cost of financial aid. They go hand in hand, and Alberta is very low when it comes to financial aid. Therefore, we've had, historically, low tuition. And this sort of blows that formula apart? That's absolutely correct. And, you know, I know that uh, on your show last week, the minister pointed out some new investments that they've made in Yeah, $167 million, right? Um, no, that $167 million is actually dedicated to increasing enrollment in certain programs. So it's going to be spreading the same amount of money over fewer students. None of that $167 million is going to financial aid. The amount dedicated to financial aid is actually way smaller than that. Um, and while obviously all financial aid is appreciated, it's a tiny drop in the bucket compared to what the government's spending on other things. And even just compared to the amount that they've cut from financial aid in the last three years. So one of their first major financial decisions around post-secondary was to to eliminate the tuition tax credit, which was $200 million right there. Yeah. So the $15 million in grants that the provincial government announced in this budget still leaves us way behind where we were in 2018. Yeah, I mean, it's about a third of the, the school's funding that's being cut over the course of three years, so you're absolutely right. Um, I wanted to ask you, uh, while I've got you, about just how things are going down on campus. I know there's been a lot of consternation about whether we have masks and whether we go back to class and, and all the rest. Just how have things been going since March 1st? Over the past two weeks here, since everything went out the window, what's it like down at the U of A? So the last two years have been really tough for universities all over the world. I mean, obviously having to go online and COVID and all the challenges that came with that. But I think it's fair to say that it's been worse at U of A than most places because of just the huge size and speed of the cuts that we've been trying to absorb in that time. So one of the reasons students are so upset about these tuition increases is that the core program quality in many of these programs has collapsed over the last two years. It's very difficult, if not impossible, at U of A sometimes to talk to an advisor, for example. Um, Many departments don't even have an office where you can go and talk to someone who supports students in that program. Um, A lot of administrative work has been downloaded onto professors, which means that they have much less time to teach and support their students. So the core quality of education has actually dropped dramatically. And and that's the other thing that frustrates students with these increases is, you know, we're getting actually substantially less uh, for much more now. Um, On the point about math, you know, my view is just the university did make a promise in February that it would maintain masks until the end of the semester. Regardless of whether you're pro-mask or against masks at this point, I think we should all agree if the university made that promise, they should stick to it because there are people who made decisions based on that commitment. Um, so that's my view on that. You know, just like hold out to the end of the semester and then and then reevaluate. Gotcha. Okay. Um, Rowan, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate you joining us. No, it's a pleasure, Shane. Have a great morning. Yeah, you too.
That is uh, Rowan Lee, who is the University of Alberta Student Union President. And um, yeah, I mean, we, we I think we've covered this story fairly thoroughly in terms of the tuition hikes. Um, very dramatic hikes. There's no question about it. And uh, eye-opening. I mean, 100% for a master's in counseling, um, some engineering degree programs, uh, almost doubling 50%, 60%, things like that. I mean, these are big hikes. These are big hikes. So uh, I appreciate both the minister and... Um, Rowan coming in and giving us uh, the, the uh, I wouldn't even say opposing, but the, the different perspectives on that story. All right, taking a look at what's going on, uh, the latest in the Russia-Ukraine situation. And of course, I mean, it, it, this story, as you know, continues to develop um, minute by minute. Uh, there's another round of talks going on today. Negotiators for Russia and Ukraine holding new talks. Um, we're into the 19th day now. This is the third round of talks. And absolutely nothing has come of the first two. And I don't think anybody is expecting anything to come out of these. Actually, today is the fourth round of talks, to be honest with you. Um, always hope, always hope that they're going to come to some kind of roadmap to progress, but at this point, I don't think anybody's holding their breath. Of course, there's now thoughts about what's going on with China. How does China fit into this? Because um, China and U.S. officials are meeting in Rome today to discuss the situation, and this comes on the heels of news over the weekend that Russia had reached out to China to request military equipment and some military support in their invasion. Uh, We know that the Russian economy closely tied to China's economy and uh, you know, with all the sanctions that are in place on Russia now, could China be a lifeline in that regard? So that's going to be something to very closely watch as well. But if anything develops, we'll keep you up to speed on that, of course. In the meantime, uh, speaking of the economic situation, they're, you know, they're severe, they're sweeping, they're unprecedented, you name it. There's been all kinds of descriptions of the list of sanctions that are being imposed on Russia right now. Uh, a lot of it aimed directly at the oligarchs, the elite. We keep hearing about that. Our prime minister has talked about that. Christian Freeland talked about that. Um, U.S. President Joe Biden targeting the elites. Why? What's the meaning? What's the hope there? We're going to chat now with Jason Garrett, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Economics at the University of Ottawa. Jason, thank you for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. No problem. Good morning. Yeah, when we take a look at these sanctions, they're, they're talking a lot about elites. We're targeting the elites, the oligarchs, as they're called. Um, why? What, what, what's the hope there by targeting the elite of Russian society? So the goal is to change the course of events. And the idea behind targeting the elites is to target people who are close to political power. And this is, you know, this is not unique to sanctions on Russia. This has been a principle behind sanctions uh, in a number of kind of cases in the last decades. And if you want to change the course of events, if politics are the, the means of changing the course of events, then, you know, there has to be some something there for people in political power to react to, and or to then, close to political power. And then to put pressure on political leadership to do whatever it is that you're hoping they'll do. Yeah, that's the idea. But it's a long game. It is, yeah, exactly. That's the thing. Nothing happens quickly here. Um, when we take a look at, and as you mentioned, it's, it's been done before historically. I know you focused uh, in a recent piece in the conversation on, on this kind of a strategy that was used in Iran, right? Yeah, that's right. So um, with a couple of colleagues, we look closely at, uh, at this elite targeting in Iran. And now, obviously, the Russian case is different. Russian politics is different. But one lesson we can draw from Iran is that 
there was an attempt there as well to try to make sure that sanctions actually affected the economic interests of people who were in political power. Now, there we weren't looking at oligarchs. We were looking at um, the economic interests of the Revolutionary Guards, which is a, a military-like organization, yeah. and the Supreme Leader, uh, Ali Khamenei. So there was some evidence that this was effective. It did do some of the things that they needed to have done. Well, effectiveness is, is in sort of two <laughs> stages, right? What you want is in the end, with the Iran situation, to get to a deal at the negotiating table yeah. where Iran agreed to pull back on its nuclear program, to put in constraints and have them monitored in return for sanctions relief. So in that sense, sanctions relief was kind of a carrot. And you want that carrot to be relevant for the people who are actually making the decisions about the nuclear program. And what we've observed, we tried to figure out whether, whether the carrot existed at all. Because you often hear in sort of anecdotes, well, sanctions are all very, all very nice, but they're not really affecting the people who are in power. And so we just, you know, we took a look at the assets of these foundations, uh, essentially the economic interests that were associated to these two powerful uh, actors in Iranian society, and, and watched what happened to those assets over time. That's the basic idea behind our own study. So it's really close monitoring of, of what, stock markets then, right? Yeah, in our case, we had to look at the stock market. So one tough thing in Russia, um, something that was tough in Iran, is that it's opaque. It's opaque what assets are, are there for these groups. It's opaque how much they're valued at. For example, there is a lot of real estate controlled by this foundation that uh, was close to the supreme leader of Iran. But what we were able to do is, is identify some of the assets of these two groups on the Iranian stock market. And so when you saw progress towards uh, sanctions relief in the diplomatic uh, negotiations, when you saw an interim deal, a final deal, what we observed is that, you know, asset values, the value of, of the wealth of these groups on the stock market went up, which is if, if what your goal is is to get a carrot that directly affects the elite groups, that's, that's what the sanctioners actually want. They want that incentive. So what we saw was the, you know, that financial incentive looked real. What we can't say is when that is whether that financial incentive was what led to the turning the turning the corner, what what really led to the decision being made to make a deal. What can this tell us about? I mean, that we're seeing the exact same levers pulled with regards to Russia. So, what can we learn from this in terms of you know we've tried this historically before? Uh, what can what lessons are there to be learned as we try and do this once again with Russia? I think there are a few. First is uh, a lesson that you honestly didn't need our study uh, to, to think about, which is that this normally is a, is a long game, yep. as I mentioned. Sanctions uh, are imposed, they're tinkered with, uh, they're ratcheted up. Um, just before our conversation, you were mentioning the possibility the, of, um, of uh, other countries. You mentioned China uh, potentially influencing how effective sanctions on Russia would be in the end. Well, that was a factor with with, uh, with Iran as well. And, and, you know, getting it right can take a while. And, you know, diplomatic negotiations in the case of Iran 
from the first Security Council, uh, the first Security Council um, decision, all the way to the final deal was was years and years. So that's the first sort of obvious lesson. The second lesson is that if you want to know whether there's a financial incentive there, if you want to know whether, for example, in in the case of Russia, uh, the sanctions on oligarchs and and others who have economic and or political power in Russia actually matter to them, you know, you might want to watch what their situation is, how it evolves. You know, is, is, it, is it in the end just a question of the revenues came from us and now they're coming from somewhere else? Is it a question of uh, the stock market crashed briefly but then gradually recovered as the economy adjusted to a, a new reality? Is it a question of, of yachts being moved into equally comfortable locations elsewhere? Or is there a real hit? Is there a real incentive? Like, wow, you can imagine that the people, the people with influence really desire sanctions relief. That, I think, is, is not easy. It requires yeah. some pretty intensive monitoring. But I think that's the monitoring that if you want to think, you want to decide whether there's an incentive or not, that's the monitoring you have to do. Yeah, you got to stay on. You got to f- follow the progress. Hey, uh, one more question for you before I let you go. And I don't even. Uh, this isn't even part of the of the work that you're doing. I, I understand that, but sure. we we talk about you know they're targeting the elites, they're targeting the oligarchs, they're targeting the elites. But I mean, just this the trickle down, if you want to call it trickle down economics. Your average Russian is going to get hurt by this. I would think far more. Then some of these oligarchs, we see all the business leaving Russia. I mean, the the economy being frozen, essentially. You can't use an ATM. I mean, all these things. We talk about the elites, and that's what we keep wanting to hear. We're not targeting the Russian people, but the Russian people are really going to pay a price here. Yeah, I think I think it's hard to argue with that. And I think uh, there's lots of evidence that that also happened in Iran. So if the overarching goal is, like, we want to change the course of events, and, the, you know, one of the ways of doing this is to try to give the elites some incentive. The problem is that, you know, it seems to be believed for Russia, and it certainly turned out to be believed for Iran, that if you can't do that without, without taking sort of really blunt instruments and whacking an economy with them, you're inevitably going to affect other people as well. You know, whether, whether in sort of dollar terms you're going to be affecting them by more is one question, but when a lot of people have just, you know, are, are much more on the border between, uh, between getting by and not getting by, um, you can imagine that, uh, that even a hit way less severe than what we're seeing in Russia right now is, is going to put them over the edge. So I think, you know, targeting is, targeting is about getting an incentive there for the elite. But as you're saying, it doesn't mean that, uh, that there's not going to be significant sure. blowback for a lot of other people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, great discussion, Jason. Thanks so much for your time. I appreciate your insight. Thanks for inviting me. You bet. That's Jason Garrett, who is an assistant professor at the Department of Economics, University of Ottawa. The country's employment figures were released late last week, and yeah, they're pretty good. Um, more than 300,000 jobs created. Um, unemployment at 5.5%, which is actually lower than the pre-pandemic levels. And that's the first time in a couple of years we've seen in uh, unemployment that low. Um, so low unemployment, lots of available work, and that means that the labor market is pretty tight out there. And competition for workers is really 
really high. And it's caused some changes in the way things are being done. To have this discussion now, we're joined by Travis O'Rourke, who is president of Hayes Specialist Recruitment. Travis, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Yeah, my pleasure. So, I mean, we're seeing uh, the numbers come back to a level that they were prior to the pandemic, and we've heard anecdotally all kinds of stories about, you know, businesses having a hard time finding people. Just give us your assessment of the labor market out there right now. Um, just how, how, how tight is it? Yeah, it probably changes, you know, sector by sector. The, I guess the biggest laggard where we had been into, I guess, this most recent data was looking at things like food services, um, tourism, uh, retail. And when you go kind of a layer below, what really brought us from 6.5% down to 5.5% were those roles. So still positive, but but um, largely at the around you know $17.50 per hour wages. Um, as you move more into I mean, corporate roles, um, the market's been really, really tight for a long time. And I think what we're getting right now is we're not seeing a ton of actual shift in employment numbers, but job activity is very high. And what the difference between those two really is, is people are jumping left and right. So they're going to the competitor across the street to get a nickel more an hour or $10 more an hour or $10,000 more per year. Wage inflation is obviously a, a real factor. And when you're paying more at the pump or you're paying more for a loaf of bread, You've got to get your money somewhere. Yeah. So that's what we're seeing. So are we seeing it flip to a point here where talent or, you know, uh, available workers are actually starting to get in the driver's seat here? They're the ones that are sort of in control at this point? Yeah, I think they've been driving for for at least six months now. Um, the question will be how long is the road that they're on? Um, you know, in Alberta, we're relatively lucky where we've got natural resources kind of um, hitting levels that we we wanted to see for some time now. Yeah. So I think Alberta will be somewhat insulated, but um, other parts of Canada might not fare so lucky given all the geopolitical concerns going on right now. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, I mean, it, there's so much uncertainty right now. We're going to have to wait and see. But um, what you know, when we talk about that the the talent in the driver's seat now, what what does that mean? Like uh, you know, I was doing some reading, and and you know, almost now where some employers are feeling just as much pressure as the the prospect, you know, how it used to be go just you be so freaked out about getting the job interview, you don't want to blow it. Now that pressure is actually on the person trying to get the talent to stick around. Yeah, it's definitely, um, I'd say it's a level playing field. And, and I think that's good. Yeah. Because pre- previously, I mean, if you're a candidate, you just wanted a job, you that's just right. wanted a paycheck. <laughs> and maybe you'd oversell yourself in an interview, or maybe you'd take a role that you didn't really want. And now you're, we're in a spot where candidates have an opportunity to join an organization that's a good fit for them. And a fit might be, you know, it allows to their flexible work schedule, it might be close to their home, that might match their organizational values. And that leads to a longer-term, happier employee. So I think it's a good thing. What kind of things seem to be the whole focus right now? I know there's been a lot of talk about hybrid, return to work, work from home, all that sort of stuff. Is that still a major consideration as we come out of this, whatever we want to call it? It's a major consideration, uh, but there's a very small group who aren't open to any sort of flexible arrangement. So the rest, you can kind of all put them in a bag and mix them up. You know, you can yeah. work from home two days a week or three days a week. Like, to some extent, who cares? It's the companies that have said, no, you must be in the office 100% of the time. That unless they have a fantastic brand or a fantastic pay package, I think they're going to find themselves in trouble. Um, 
what about wages? I mean, of course, that's the other consideration. You have to think if the labor market's this tight and, you know, it's sort of leveled off, as you say, wages must be going up like crazy, right? Right? I, yeah, I think previously that candidate, maybe they got one offer, but now maybe they got three offers. Yeah. And they start playing them off each other. And then they leave their role, and the person who was sitting next to them thought, geez, if Sally just got that, yeah. maybe I can too. So the attrition is driven by the wages. What about the fact that, you know, just going forward, you know, I mean, when you have something this major happen, some of the, you know, the changes can be long lasting. I'm just thinking if you're a company where all of a sudden, like you say, you know, the hybrid needs to work in some industries, wages have gone up. There needs to be a different consideration for this, that, and the other thing when you're hiring people. It's not just, you know, put up a help wanted sign and you'll get 50 people and you pick the one you want. Now it's sort of, we need to try and find somebody. Will this be a lasting change to corporate culture, do you think, in terms of, okay, we can't just say we're going to do things. We actually have to make changes to be more attractive to prospective employees? I think so. I I really do, because I mean, a lot of it is just old-school process, and it needs to be refined. And in the old-school process, it was, here's the job description, take it or leave it. And now, recruitment or HR departments are focusing on their employer value proposition. And once we've established, well, this is what makes us special, and we've got charity days, and we've got fantastic yeah. EDI goals, uh, there's no reason for those things to go away. So I, I think they're here to stay, and we'll all be better off for it. Yeah. I mean, hey, maybe sometimes, you know, these lasting changes will be a good thing for all of us. Interesting stuff, Travis. Thanks very much. My pleasure. Take care. You too. That is Travis O'Rourke, who is president of Hayes Specialist Recruitment. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.